turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast. My guest today is Stephen Sukup, who is the publisher of the Political Forum, and he is the author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, um, which um, just came out in paperback uh, quite recently. The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. I think this is probably the most intellectually rigorous critique of woke capitalism and the ESG movement. There's been a lot of writing on this topic, and a lot of it's been quite good, but I don't think any of it's gotten quite as deep and as and his, as historically aware as uh, Steve Sukup's work. So, Steve, welcome to Meeting of Minds. Thank you very much, Jerry. I appreciate it. I uh, really appreciate uh, your work, um, your daily newsletter, um, and, uh, and this book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. Um, you spend a fair amount of time... Um, talking about the intellectual roots of what now is called wokeism. I mean, you go back a few years and people would have said political correctness. Uh, I mean, these, these things keep changing names, right? Like snakes keep shedding their skins. They keep shedding skins and having new names. And then when, a, when another name gets a bad reputation, they say, oh, well, that's not our name anymore. Uh, we're, now we're woke. And then that gets a bad reputation. And now we're, you know... Um, You've you spent a fair amount of time going back into the history of progressivism, uh, et cetera, and I actually think that's helpful. Um, you know, what does Cicero say? He who doesn't study history is um, destined to remain forever a child. And I think if we don't get where this stuff is coming from, we won't really be effectively able to understand and counter it. So, Steve, where is this stuff coming from? Well, I, I, in the uh, in the book, uh, I, I try and draw two streams of thought. Uh, that led us to the point where we're at now. One is essentially traditional progressivism, traditional managerial uh, top-down thought, you know, the way that this uh, works with public administration and private administration and bureaucracy. And the idea being that uh, most of what uh, the founders believed about republicanism uh, is to the political left and especially uh, the progressive political left, uh, something of an, a historical anomaly, that they believe that the people need to be led around by their noses in order to make the proper decisions, that the people themselves are ignorant uh, and need to have a guardian class to uh, look over them and to take care of them. Um, the, other, the other stream is uh, cultural leftism which springs mostly from the post-World War II era, uh, particularly in Germany, uh, where the Marxists were trying to figure out why it was that the, the workers of the world never united uh, and, and how they could ensure that the workers would at some point in the future unite. And, and they concluded uh, essentially that the problem was the institutions of Western civilization, starting with uh, the church, Christianity, uh, had kept the workers unaware uh, of their real needs and their real uh, their real uh, requirements for having a, a, a good life. And so 
the idea was to take over the institution. So we get this combination of, of leftist thought uh, taking over institutions slowly but surely since uh, about 100 years ago, and this progressive thought that top-down managerial uh, exercise is probably the best way to run uh, any society coming from a the, the roots of progressive is about 150 years ago. So that first stream, um, that's Ely and Johns Hopkins and and Woodrow Wilson, that's progressive in the old sense of the progressive party or the progressive movement, which is somewhat dis- distinct from pro- well, the, the meaning of the word progressive now. Progressive now means to the left. Progressive then meant f- progress and was in some sense almost culturally conservative or um, I mean, it was very waspish. It was very Ivy League. Uh, they weren't looking for a revolution. <laughs> that, you know. No, in, in fact, they were looking to prevent a revolution. And, yeah. and, you know, that's one of the things that Ely and, and Wilson in particular are, they're pietists. They're very aggressively religious. Um, in fact, Ely's, Ely's whole thing was that he believed that it was God's will uh, that governments uh, take care of those who are less capable of taking care of themselves than uh, the intellectuals like him himself. Hmm. So it, it, it's a very uh, aggressively religious movement that brought us uh, to the original progressives. Right, and not aggressively religious in the terms of the new pseudo-religions of wokeism and, and greenism. And I, They were mainline Protestants, basically. Yeah, they were mainline Protestants. Aggressive, I guess, in the belief uh, that the state was to be a partner with the church in advancing God's will on earth. And the Ivy League universities, right? So right. this is the institution. Uh, so they didn't want a revolution, and they didn't want, a, you know, a sort of a sexual revolution. I mean, Woodrow Wilson privately wanted, you know, a kind of a sexual revolution. Uh, you know, he, he, he didn't want to be bound by the Christian social ethic himself, but he would not publicly undermine it. Um, and so I guess— you know, what you're painting here is a picture where that old WASP elite creates centralized institutions, which then then later are either captured or maybe even to some degree co-opt. It's not, it's not clear whether the cultural left is invading or whether it's being invited in, um, uh, but the, these, you get these institutions, you get a managerial class. That, this is where the Federal Reserve, for instance, comes from. So we need experts to run things, smart people to run things. Um, and those smart people at some point begin to embrace, uh, they're no longer mainline Protestants in any meaningful way. They're no longer Christian in any meaningful way. The sexual revolution and the green revolution uh, becomes the kind of the justifying ideology. So that's how these two streams come together. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think I use the 1960s, which is, is a pretty good uh period to um, talk about how uh, mainline politics gets perverted by the cultural left. And, and I think that the, the two streams meeting roughly in the 1960s is is probably pretty accurate, yes. So a lot of that is political institutions and universities. Oh, sure. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, academic institutions came first, and, and then a lot of the political institutions as well. And, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, that they were invited in. They didn't, you know, they didn't necessarily have to take over academia. Uh, academia invited them in uh, very uh, blatantly and, and very unapologetically. 
They kind of get into politics via the appointment process with civil service, uh, you know, right. which, is going to, which is going to get rid of the patronage system. For all the problems with the patronage system, though, there was a certain responsiveness. Political machines were responsive in some sense to the people. And then this progressive movement essentially says, don't be responsive to the people. The people are the problem. Um, so we're going to have board, we're going to have an airport authority. We're going to have a water authority. We're going to have a money authority. That's the federal reserve. We're going to have commissions. So we start, governance starts to move towards appointed commissions and civil service payrollers. And, you know, what some people now call the deep state, that's kind of a politically laden. I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way. I mean it in a sociological way, a managerial class, which is kind of people, people get elected. And then they're, they're there for two years or four years or whatever, and then they go on, and other people get elected, and then they go on. But there's people who don't go on. There's people who are there all the time. They might be there for 30 or 40 years, and those, those are kind of the, that's where this thing kind of nests and roots um, and makes it to some degree impervious to electoral politics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the interesting things is that uh, the Wilsonian conception uh, of bureaucracy was uh, intended to be distinct from politics entirely. The, the politics administration dichotomy, they call it. Uh, they wanted for uh, the administrative portion of the government uh, not to be affected by politics. Uh, and then along in the 1950s and the 1960s, the theorists came and said, you know, this is wrong. Uh, we need, and the irony is that they didn't say we need for uh, the bureaucracies to be more responsive to the masses, political forces. What they said was, we need for the bureaucrats to be more politically active. Uh, this dichotomy keeps them from expressing their values, uh, and we need the bureaucracy to be politically active. So we need to get rid of this dichotomy, not in the sense to protect the people, but to free up the bureaucrats to be more politically active. So, yeah, that's... Uh, it begins with insulating them from the public, uh, and then it, it ends essentially with giving them powers while remaining insulated from the public. So it's uh, a very uh, self-serving and uh, uh, self-preserving inst- set of institutions. So this crowd, I mean, gives up probably pretty early on the idea of getting rid of democratic institutions. I mean, there's some talk about dictatorship in the 20s and 30s. Amity Schles has written about this in her book about about Roosevelt. But uh, that doesn't last long. In essence, they, instead of saying, well, we can't have democratic institutions, it's almost like, go ahead and have your elections. Just we're going to we're going to mute the impact of elections on policymaking. But you can still have them, right? Yep. Yeah. Right. Um, And then you've got Edward Bernays kind of coming along and the father of spin saying, well, because we still we're stuck with these democratic institutions, we public relations executives have to get really good at manipulating public opinion so we can move so we can steer people in accordance with the, you know, the drift of history, with the progressive drift of history. So you have an interesting section. um, Maybe it's in the book or maybe I've heard you speak about it or probably both. This stuff doesn't start out in business and it kind of comes in through Stanford, right? Through the um, through the TAP right. program. Is that is was that the entry point? Right. Yeah. Stanford run, you know, the Stanford uh, had in the late in the mid to late 1960s had a manager managerial consulting arm uh, associated with the university that was specifically geared toward helping businesses understand 
what is successful and thus apply that and, and be successful. Uh, and, and they created a number of different ideas. They, they pushed a number of different ideas uh, that were directed specifically to be objective measures. This is what you do. This is how you do it. This is how uh, you make it effective. They were purely instructive. They were not meant to be in any way normative. Uh, but because of the way uh, the culture, uh, particularly in academia, uh, evolved uh, over the next quarter century or so, those ideas that, that Stanford took uh, became uh, normative ideas. Uh, they started with, with basic objective measures. You know, this is how you work. This is how you succeed. Uh, and those became turned into something and a, a means by which to apply values to business. So this is almost like, you know, what you described in terms of the progressive movement creating centralized institutions that then get ideologically captured. So the whole idea of the management consultant and best practices. I was I worked for a very large consulting firm, largest in the world, uh, at least when I was working for it um, in the 1980s. And best practices was all over the place, right? We're always telling, we're trying to tell companies what what are the best practices in terms of computer policy and information policy or um, or accounting, financial, et cetera. So we create this best practices idea, and then we create these carrier institutions, these consultancies, right? So it's like it lands on, it's almost like a mosquito. It lands on one organization and picks it up, and then it lands on another organization, and this stuff gets spread around. But it really was managerial consulting. Um, and then at some point, it becomes ideological so that, as far as I can tell, McKinsey, for instance, is all in right now with ESG. So best practices might be that you want your board aligned with um, financial incentives. Or best practices might be that you want a fairly decentralized hierarchy in your business. Or best practices might be continuous improvement really business stuff. You can debate whether it's good or not, but it's really business stuff. And at some point, best practices becomes you have to kowtow to the LGBTQ lobby in everything because that's the only way to have a good workforce. And that's the only way to attract intelligent and creative people. Richard Florida was doing this at the city level um, and Mm -hmm. it's now being done with companies so that you've got over and over again, when I talk to these companies, well, we have to do it, right? Because this is the only way to attract talent. Really? I mean, it is mo- are most of your most talented computer programmers, uh, or even I even heard this from an oil company executive just last week. Well, we have to do this because this is the way to attract talent. It's like you're having trouble attracting roughnecks to work on oil fields. <laughs> and you really think that, you know, affirming uh, gender uh, affirm- affirming care or that whole agenda, that's the way to get roughnecks to sign up? I mean, this is silly, but that became best practices, and at some point, fairly detached from reality and from data, and became, as you're saying, it it was originally positive, descriptive, and now it's highly prescriptive, or it's descriptive, it's prescriptive depending, uh, sorry, prescriptive pretending to be descriptive. Yeah, absolutely. That's the Stanford Research Institute, for example, the idea of stakeholder capitalism. Uh, The stakeholder model has its origins as we, with the Stanford Research Institute in the late 1960s. But the way that they introduced the stakeholder model was this is the way for businesses to succeed. To understand the way that 
your employees interact with your customers and you all interact with the environment around you to understand how that works uh, is to be successful. And, and nobody who's ever run a successful business can say, yeah, I don't care about my employees or I don't care about my customers. You know, this is all common sense stuff. And they sort of codified it over the course of the 70s and then especially into the late or pardon me, into the early 1980s, you get this move to democratize markets or to, to democratize business. Uh, and this starts in particular with, with a man named uh, Edward Freeman, our Edward Freeman, uh, who went to work. Uh, he got his PhD in philosophy and then went to work at uh, a research institute that was being created at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania uh, to mimic what they had done at Stanford. Uh, but he had this idea that he could introduce values into it, that he could create uh, a way to take this objective standard model and turn it into something that could uh, achieve a more social, socially positive end. Interesting. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I just had a conversation with uh, Dean Abella from the Bush School, the Bush Business School. Mm -hmm. He studied under Freeman. Oh, um, did he? And, and he said it's fascinating to see his kind of his biography, he was raised in a very conservative religious home. Um, and it was uh, hostile and kind of abusive. So he reacted and became extremely negative towards Christianity. Mm. Um, and, in, and in essence, you know, this new progressivism becomes the substitute. It's another way of saving the world. He no longer found Christianity to be a palatable saving of the world because of the alleged, I don't know what is, was actually going on with his family, but the feeling that he was mistreated by his family. Um, and so, you know, that biography essentially becomes, you know, of, of this um, stakeholder capitalism. So it's interesting, in your book, um, you avoid reacting to the stakeholder idea um, because there's a lot, there's some people, it's like you say stakeholder, it's like Niagara Falls, you know, slowly I turn, step by, you know, like, like don't say stakeholder. Um, but, you know, good management theorists, you know, Drucker and before him Demings, said you need to pay a lot of attention to your workforce, right? You sure. need to develop them. Yeah. You, need to, you need to learn from them, right? Management by walking around was part of it. And uh, TMI, the Toyota method, it's all very, very focused on employees. But something comes along with Freeman where it's not that you are working you know, to make your employees as productive um, and, and as effective as they can be because you're accountable to shareholders because they own the company, but instead they become competing entities. Now, you, it's not workforce is there for the, for the owners. You're, you're accountable to the owners, right? And therefore you develop and empower the workers. Instead, now it's like, well, we're now balancing the interests. It has a competing interest kind of uh, embedded idea, and now we're diluting the property right of the shareholders. Is, um, is that, do you agree with that description? Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. Um, you know, in the book, I make the case that uh, the Friedman model, uh, you know, the, the shareholder, or part, yeah, the shareholder uh, primacy, mo primacy model is, is based on literally millennia of Western civilization, Western traditions, uh, you know, dating back to uh, the ancient Jews, to uh, ancient Rome, to ancient Greece, uh, and then sort of articulated in particular in the Bible in the parable of the talents, that if you are given these gifts uh, by 
uh, you know, somebody above you, whether uh, in, in the parable, uh, it, it's the master and in, in uh, Friedmanite uh, terms, it's the, uh, the shareholder. If you're given these gifts, then you have a responsibility to use them, uh, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of the owner uh, and, and to advance the causes that he's he's uh, asked you to advance, that you have this moral responsibility. Um, Freeman comes along uh, and changes by the, the, by the way, the it, not just the parable of the talents, the power, every one of Jesus's financial parables, as far as I can tell, takes the side of the owner against the steward. Um, in other words, the moral, it's the parable of the talents, it's the parable of the vineyard workers, it's the parable of the unfaithful steward. In every mm. case, I mean, this is very odd. Um, my friend David Finnessy, the archaeologist, said if Jesus was kind of trying to do some kind of socialist peasant revolt, he sure told some weird <laughs> stories. Because in his right. stories, the capitalist, the owner, uh, entrusts something to somebody, and that somebody fails to put the interest of the owner first. Uh, I mean, you look at the parable of the um, unfaithful steward. That's stakeholder capitalism. He forgives mm-hmm. debts to customers in order to curry favor with them to the detriment right. of the owner. Uh, I mean, that, right. it's, so I think it's I think it's pretty clear. Yeah, um, so I'm I'm not disagreeing i'm just adding extra parables right and and i don't think that's unconscious on jesus's part we around the time you look i wrote a whole book on this so i could i could take up all your time um around the time that jesus is growing up in galilee the 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 model of an absentee owner and a steward is coming into that society about a generation before so this is a brand new idea in northern israel and for you know like joseph and mary would have seen it it would have been new you know, probably for their parents. So it's it's kind of like a new thing coming across Galilee. So Jesus is seeing this, and he's seeing, earlier, before economists now, he's seeing the agency risk problem. He's saying that when somebody owns and somebody else manages, uh, that creates the possibility that they're not really serving, and then he applies that analogy to the relationship between God, say, and the religious leaders, who are right. stewards of the you know, what God had entrusted to them, and they were misused, misused those assets. So this is something, I think it's a, actually a pretty key theme, you know, yeah, in absolutely. the New Testament. Yeah, go ahead. And, and Friedman reflects that. I yeah. mean, his model reflects that quite well. Um, unfortunately, the practitioners uh, of the Friedmanite model during the 1970s didn't necessarily reflect it terribly well. Uh, and so you get, by the end of the 1970s, the early 1980s, guys like Freeman who are looking around and saying, hey, you know what, This is there's something wrong with capitalism. There's something morally uh, dysfunctional here, and we have to uh, address that. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, I, I think Freeman is probably, not only is he very smart, but I think he's probably a good guy with, a, with his, his heart in the right place, but he makes the same mistake that uh, every reformer since the Enlightenment is made, and he throws out the, you know, the baby with the bathwater and says, "Here, we're just going to introduce a new moral code, uh, and this is how we're going to run things." And so he turns the stakeholder model into, uh, a, you know, an ethical model, a moral model, a, a model that is that is intended to have normative results, uh, and, and essentially just undermines the, the principles that had been guiding capitalism essentially for two millennia. Yeah, um, um, a system before which we died at an average of 35 years. Yeah, well, half of children didn't make it 
you know, right. teenage years. I mean, yep. for, the system may have flaws, but boy, oh boy, it was a whole lot better than anything we've seen before. And I, it's almost like a luxury good to toy around with uh, throwing it out. So what I see is that once a company adopts a stakeholder model, they don't multiply the number of entities that they are accountable to. They really get rid of all accountability because if the managers are choosing stakeholders to answer to, they they get to choose which ones they're answering to at any given time, which means right. they're really now autonomous. Yeah, and, and that's that's one of the cases that's made to explain why the stakeholder model has taken off so much is that it, it is, in fact, a cynical ploy by a lot of these CEOs and, and other executives to uh, free themselves from any sort of accountability, uh, that, that it just so happens that this normative model of uh, capitalism fits well with their own personal interests, and so they find it uh, useful. Yes. Um, maybe some of them really believe this stuff. Uh, right. I mean, I guess what I think is that the distinction between self-interest and what you really believe kind of dissolves. <laughs> if it's really self-interested um, and someone can make a plausible case, you can really believe it, you know, um, yeah. because, I mean, let's face it, the only group that has enough power to reign in a powerful CEO is the shareholders. Right. Um, so if you demote them, then you've really um, broken the power over them. They're not going to be reined in by penguins and unions and, you know, all the other, and, or the planet or all of the other stakeholders out there. That's not, that's not going to happen. I mean, maybe right. the state, um, but um, so, okay. So let, let's kind of bring things up uh, more contemporary. You've got a um, image on the front of your book that looks like mouse ears. So I think there's one company in particular that, uh, we could probably talk about, although you talk about Amazon. I mean, you talk about a number of companies and Apple as well. Uh, but I think Disney's a great example, uh, both of the rise and maybe the exposure. I mean, it might be that Disney is what is going to destroy ESG and stakeholder capitalism um, because it, it, it's. I think it was the trigger probably for the largest number of uh, conservatives. So let's just talk about a little bit about the Disney story, if you don't mind. Well, the Disney story is interesting. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw, but last week, uh, Nikki Haley uh, tweeted something to Disney saying, hey, you know, if you're not happy in Florida, uh, bring your 70,000 jobs up here to South Carolina. We'd be happy to welcome you. Uh, we aren't woke, but we're not going to be sanctimonious about it either, uh, which was a swipe. Uh, obviously, at Governor DeSantis. Yes. Um, what she didn't either didn't understand or didn't care to get into is the fact that Disney's issues begin long before uh, Governor DeSantis. They started their fight with Governor DeSantis um, in two thousand. I want to say two thousand fifteen. Uh, Georgia passed a religious freedom law, uh, and because Georgia is home to a lot of Hollywood production. Uh, today, uh, they have 90,000 uh, entertainment jobs in the state of Georgia. Uh, Bob Iger, then the CEO of Disney, took the lead in, in pushing back uh, against this religious liberty bill, saying, hey, look, we can't have you guys uh, being discriminatory against any group that we think uh, needs to be uh, elevated. And you need to um, you need to end this right now. 
they got involved in 2015 or 2017 uh, in North Carolina uh, with the bathroom bill, uh, the so-called bathroom bill, when the state pushed back against uh, the city of Charlotte, which had decided that, you know, you can use whatever bathroom you want. Uh, and the state said, hold on, we got to be a little careful about this. Uh, again, Bob Iger got involved and, and, and led Hollywood. And then again in 2019, uh, when Georgia passed the fetal heartbeat bill, uh, Iger said, I don't believe that this law is compatible with a happy workforce. And I don't see how I can continue to employ people in the state of Georgia uh, in this sort of political atmosphere. That is a direct threat uh, to the economy of Georgia and to the well-being of literally 90,000 people. That's using his employees uh, as pawns, as leverage, uh, to try to achieve a political end. So uh, Disney has been at this a long time. Bob Iger, who's uh, almost universally known as the nicest man in Hollywood, uh, is also a very aggressively uh, political man and is willing to do whatever he can to advance his political agenda. Yeah, and I got to tell you, I several months ago, I I I attended that that Disney meeting with Bob Chapek, the CEO before Iger, um, and that that was a, a a crystal clear example of what happens when conservatives don't show up, because at the beginning of the meeting he didn't want to say anything about the bill, right? right? They had made a decision internally, we're staying out of it, smart, and then you know question after question after question, all pulling from one side. Um, so, um, conservatives, um, just didn't push back on this one. And by the end of the meeting, and it was clear that they were switching towards attacking the, uh, attacking the bill. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, that night I watch Fox news and people are talking about how bad Disney was and maybe a million people are watching. It's like, if, you know, if, if a hundred of you had been at that meeting and asked questions, we would have had a different outcome. You know, if we like a tenth of a percent of the people who are outraged had just dialed in with their control number, you know, click, I want to ask a question. Um, and then um, they dumped Chapek and Iger right. came in. I'm not going to mention names, but there were there were like victory declarations from some conservative leaders. Look, we effectuated change at Disney. Look, we're, we're making a difference. And wait, Bob Iger. Bob Iger was on the sidelines, un, uh, uh, you know, uh, subverting with with his Twitter account, subverting Chapek for trying to stay neutral on the issue. Actually, Chapek wasn't even neutral. He just wanted to, like, lobby privately rather than lobby right. publicly. So now Iger's in there, and now they're in a full-on battle with DeSantis, a battle that I don't think either of them were really going to win. I mean, a corp- it's, it's bad corporate management for them to be in a fight with the state. It might not be great for DeSantis either. I, I, it's right. controversial. No, I, I agree with you. I, I think this is a fight with no winners. Right. So um, uh, I guess outrage at a distance maybe doesn't have the effect. I mean, it helped Iger get back in power and probably move Disney to more aggressively left in politics. Yeah, but, uh, I, I think so. I think... That Chapek was was probably trying very hard uh, to to move past the Iger uh, legacy of being aggressively political, uh, and he just was. It turned out that in the face of opposition, particularly from his employees, he was weak, uh, and that gave Iger the opportunity to get back in and to uh, reassert his uh, political agenda. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned employees because they they hide behind the employees a lot. 
So there are some employee resource groups, ERGs, that are aggressive and confident, and no one's afraid of losing their job. Right. But say the conservative, like the Christian Employee Resource Group or the Veteran Employee Resource Group, they're afraid of losing their job if they speak out. So, you know, the, the LGBTQ group was very active on that meeting. But when the Christians at Disney wanted to speak up, they did a letter that no one signed. Right. right. They were afraid. Understandably yeah. so. Right. Yeah. So uh, so management basically decides which employees it's going to listen to. Um, and if they don't have viewpoint diversity protection, there's always the threat of firing. Or if you're not fired, at least, there's a, oh, there's a little Red Sea. You're a conservative. You know, your career's not going to go quite so well. So in right. essence, manage, management is deciding which em- – some employees are more equal than others, uh, to use yeah, the word. Yeah, there's no, there's no question that that's part of it. And part of it is also the squeaky wheel issue that the ones who feel comfortable uh, making uh, a ruckus are the ones that, that get – uh, what they want. Right. Uh, so it's, and it's management that decides whether they're going to feel comfortable or not. Yeah. That's yeah. inarguably true. Right. Uh, so you might get the James Daymore treatment, you know, if right. you, uh, yeah. All right. So, um, uh, the dictatorship of woke capital just came out in a uh, new paperback edition. So you have some, some new material, um, uh, in the new version of that, that's not in the original version. What's, what's new in the book? Well, uh, what's new mostly is the preface. Uh, and in the preface, I, I make a couple of corrections, uh, for uh, issues that I think I, I, I misunderstood a little bit uh, the first time around. One of those is Larry Fink's position. Uh, in the original introduction to the book, uh, I refer to uh, Larry Fink as a true believer, somebody who I think is in this for strictly ideological purposes. Uh, I think the last couple of years have shown that he is, uh, that it's wise to take a much more cynical uh perspective on Larry Fink than simply to say he's a true believer. Uh, He may be a true believer, but he's also clever enough to know that this is a way for him uh, to make a lot of money uh, and to use the resources he has to leverage it to to gain power and and to consider or to uh, enhance the the position of BlackRock in the in the financial services industry. And his most recent uh, shareholder letter, I don't believe he used the words, the letters E S and G in that order. Um, right. And so maybe he's a true believer, but not a martyr at least. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that's he, he, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm much more cynical now of Larry Fink than I was three years ago when I was writing the book. Yeah. Um, the other, the other corrections I make is, is to note that are not, they're not corrections, but additions to note how successful uh, the pushback against this has been. Um, when I wrote the book three years ago, um, I was pretty uh, pessimistic that much could be done. Interesting. Uh, I wanted to lay out the issues. I wanted to spell it out and explain why it mattered uh, with the hope that people would get involved, and with the hope that people uh, would push back. But probably for the first couple of months when I was doing uh, various radio interviews, people would ask me, what do we do? And I stuttered and stammered and, well, you can do this, and you can do that. But people got involved. Um, you know, I mentioned two people in particular uh, who have made a significant, a huge difference. Uh, one is obviously Vivek Ramaswamy, who wrote his own book uh, and then put his money where his mouth is and opened up Strive Asset Management uh, and is now taking some of these issues on the, the presidential campaign trail. Uh, but also Derek Kreifels, who runs the State Financial Officers Foundation, yeah. has made an enormous uh, impact 
uh, on the way that we perceive this issue and and on the effectiveness of the pushback. His idea to get uh, the state treasurers involved and push this to uh, a federalist uh, issue as opposed to you know strictly a financial or national pushback against it was was brilliant and has been extremely powerful. Yeah, I'd say the state treasurers were the the um, the breaker point that, that you know the, the wave of human progress had not counted on just these. You know, it's not a sexy job to be treasurer or comptroller or auditor general, right? It's a, uh, but the, um, the Marlo Oaks and the Jimmy Patronuses and the Allison Balls and the, uh, the John Morantes, and I'm leaving out a lot of good people here. Um, you know, they they just stood up. Uh, our own um, uh, Stacey Garrity here in Pennsylvania. Uh, I, they didn't. No one counted on them, right? And they have right. they they have genuine clout, right? Um, and that clout has begun to register. Um, but I'll, I'll mention, uh, you know somebody else who doesn't get credit and it's not a somebody else just a whole lot of people started showing up um like for instance i just recently listened to the amex american express meeting right first question in the general question was somebody stood up and said you you've supported these trans rights bills you've uh, you've you're partnered with the trevor foundation this is the general general mutilation of minors that they're supporting uh, how in the world can you justify that to shareholders? That was the only ideological question I heard at the MX. Oh, no, there was one from a union guy on on worker issues, which is kind of the old liberal. Um, so, I mean, typically you go to a shareholder meeting and all of the questions are coming from the left. Pfizer just last week, early on, someone comes on, Bible-believing guy. I don't think you ought to do abortifacients. I don't think you should support abortion. It's against the Bible, and I think you should do good and obey God. I mean, what's happening is there is unexpected, there's a little Minuteman thing going on where they're figuring out now, um, you know, they can use their control numbers, they know how to log on, and there's people just showing up and asking questions. Uh, and I, again, I didn't think anyone was counting on that either, but I'm hearing it happen. I'm especially hearing it this year, very little last year, a lot more this year. And there's nobody in charge of it. Well, maybe the Holy Spirit. Okay. But there's no political actor. There's no thought leader. I mean, yeah, they probably read your book or some of my columns, but in, in many ways they're kind of organizing on their own or, or not organizing, just showing up and asking these right. questions. Yeah. When, when I used to talk about you know, what can you do? The idea was take back what is yours. If you're a shareholder of this company, take back what is yours. You have a right uh, to your ownership stake. You have a right to speak to management. You have an absolute right to have your views uh, on this air. Uh, and it, it's important to do that. It, I would get questions all the time. Do we boycott these companies? Do we stay away from them? No. And, you know, you as much as anybody know that the idea is we have to engage. If you don't use what is yours, if you don't engage, then you leave the playing field to the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, she also mentioned Justin Danhoff, who was doing this before yep. it was cool. Um, Scott Shepard as well. My yep. friend, Tom Strobar was doing it t- for 25 years. Uh, got AT&T, got Chevron to stop uh, supporting uh, um, Planned Parenthood. And I believe AT&T as well. Uh, so, um, there's a lot of people whose names we never hear, right? Who have done and, and, and a tremendous amount of, of good. Yeah, uh, one of the interesting things that I think people don't understand about what 
uh, Strive is doing. And it's important to, to note that Justin uh, is now uh, the director of corporate governance for Strive, um, is that they built their entire model around engagement. Uh, you know, people right. say, why do you have these funds that mimic BlackRock funds? Why do you have these funds that are the exact same as the ESG companies? And the idea is that because it's important to provide a counterbalance. If BlackRock is going to say, we want you to focus exclusively on sustainability, it's important to have somebody engaging and saying, we want you to focus on being the best business you can be. We want you to focus on excellence. Uh, so, I, you know, it's it's very important to engage. And everybody who's done that uh, over the last couple of years, as you say, has been a pleasant surprise. Right. And and hats off to Strive and to Justin. I should mention there are others who are also in this field uh, who uh, maybe don't get quite as much attention, but uh, um, also are quite active in proxy engagement um, and in money management, um, some of them have been, been at it for years. But since I don't run this podcast as a vendor, but as a thought leader, right. <laughs> uh, I will uh, just say that... Uh, there are there are there are other op, there are other options out there as well. Uh, I'll mention another competitor that'll be helpful. Inspire Investing, for example, has been doing a lot of uh, a lot of engagement and uh, some. And the more the merrier. Well, yeah, the, the, right. the, the way to push back against this centralization uh, of power in the hands of you know a handful of asset managers who control you know half the invested capital in the world is to create new ones or to. Uh, improve those that exist and, and to, to push them, to allow them to provide a counterbalance. The more the merrier and, and right. the more the better. Yeah, it's a big market. Um, all right. So do you mind, if you have a few minutes, I'd like to talk a little bit about some new data that came out recently from Ballotpedia, uh, which is looking those states we just talked about. Right. Um, and we just praised those states, um, the, those state treasurers or, or financial officers. And not taking away from that, um, the, I think that data from Ballotpedia indicates that maybe they've done a good start. I know it checked us, right? Um, but they maybe have a, a little ways to go when it comes to the asset managers that they're dealing with. Or I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd like your interpretation. I, are you familiar with the Ballotpedia research report? I am. Yeah, I am. Uh, and, and what they've done is, is take a look at uh, – all the asset managers that are being used by all of the state pensions uh, throughout the country uh, and looked at their affiliations, particularly with respect to um, the, what we call sustainability or, you know, well capital, uh, any of the organizations that are pushing environmental uh, ideas on uh, as a first principle uh, to asset managers. Uh, and They've, they've compiled this fantastic data set that shows that, you know, a lot of times it's not just BlackRock. It's not just State Street. Uh, and the officials in the state need to be aware uh, of who they're doing business with. Just because they're not making headlines doesn't mean they're not uh, affiliated with or have signed the UN's principles on responsible investments. Uh, because a lot of times they have, uh, which makes them no different in practice. Right. Uh, than the big three or the net zero alliance um, right right uh, or the climate action 100 Uh, and i believe that report said that all 50 states had at least one asset manager often several multiples multiples who were signers of at least you know one of these anti-fossil fuels initiatives 
Right. So, uh, so obviously that includes the energy producing states. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. So, th- so, yeah, so I guess, I guess the issue here is, again, it's a little bit of this going back to the beginning of this interview, the payrollers, someone elects a treasurer, the treasurer comes in, they change what they can, but there's an appointee and maybe under that there's an appointee and then there's permanent, there's a permanent right. committee, there's another committee, there's sort of permanent government and it's kind of hard to change what you know if you change asset managers or change a lot of times this is happening with the sub advisors it's not an easy fix uh for them right. to realign uh you know and start to essentially do business with with uh, with, uh, with um companies that are in fact aligned with their economic interest right yeah it, it's uh, there there's resistance within the permanent bureaucracy and then there's also the issue of these government advisory boards that conservatives generally have ignored. Um, a lot of times there are vacancies that nobody wants to get involved, like your pen, your state pension advisory board. Uh, if you don't have a list of people who are willing to push back against uh, you know, sustainability or whatever as a primary uh, investment uh, criteria, then you're not going to get that from your state pension advisory board. You need people who are willing to serve uh, and understand the issue. And so the fact that conservatives have not, uh, A, understood, and B, been willing to serve on these boards uh, has been a significant problem for a lot of states. Yeah. And then, you know, even if someone pushes back a little bit, well, here's a guy from McKinsey uh, who says best practices right. are to assume that oil will be useless uh, and worthless and a stranded asset. Or here's the example. Here's a Wharton study. Didn't Freeman go to Wharton to do this, right? Um was it Freeman go to Wharton? Who went to, who did this at Wharton? Um, well, Free, Free, Freeman started at Wharton. Okay. Um, he uh, spent the last several years at UVA, but um, right. yeah, he started at, at Wharton. But Wharton is, is very aggressively uh, woke. Um, Wharton, in fact, just a couple of months ago announced that they now have a uh, will offer undergraduate and graduate majors in both DEI and ESG, uh, which was that made them one of the first business schools to make this an official part of their curriculum. And Wharton did a study, pretty flawed, talking about how it'll cost billions of dollars. Sure. Um, You know, assuming, uh, like, for instance, based on the idea that these anti-ESG, the anti-ESG legislation applies to municipalities, which, like, for instance, it often doesn't, and that's where most of the borrowing occurs. Also assuming that there'll be no market reaction, um, and so there won't be anybody who will be doing underwriting municipal bonds at market rate. I mean, it was to me, it was propaganda. Um, right. And their, their historic association with ESG and uh, uh, stakeholder capital. So, um, so they're up against something. But I guess, I guess the thing about this Ballotpedia study is this now identifies, this is like a, this helps yeah. the treasurer say, okay, who are we doing business with who's turning around and, for instance, if you're an energy producing state, who's turning around and essentially trying to destroy the, uh, the, the industry on which our state's economy is built? And then maybe they can make the change, maybe they can't, or maybe they have to be there a few terms in order to do it, you know, to outlast some of these committees. But at least they know there's a problem. It gives them something, you know, to it, it identifies that the issue is not dealt with with a press conference or a piece of legislation, you actually have to make changes at the asset management level. Well, it, or, uh, you know, it, it's possible, too, that you can engage uh, with some of these companies. I, 
agree. I want to say it was U.S. Bank. When Riley Moore, uh, the treasurer of West Virginia, engaged with, I think it was 10 or 11 financial institutions that they said were causing detriment to the state, he actually got U.S. Bank to say, fine, you know what, you're right, uh, and we'll stop. Good point. Uh, so, you know, this is an opportunity, another opportunity for engagement as well. Yeah, and we should probably mention, um, I don't know if you saw, 1792 Exchange recently released some data uh, based on the Ballotpedia work, um, mm-hmm. which the Ballotpedia work is saying this asset manager um, you know, has, is, is affiliated with this anti-fossil fuel group, the, the 1792 Exchange, which is still in beta. Um, uh, so I don't think it's available freely on the web. I think you'd have to talk to them is essentially looking at the voting patterns of those. Right. So not just what they signed up for, but how are they actually voting on greenhouse gas emissions? How are they actually voting on climate action? How are they actually voting on these health care, which is really abortion proposals? How are they voting on Second Amendment issues? Um, and I'd say pretty similar results, uh, right. work to do, but, yeah. but, but doable work. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, Steve uh, Sukup. Um, anything else you want to? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover before we uh, sign off? I've uh, found to be an interesting discussion. Uh, if someone wants to like follow what you're doing on an ongoing basis, obviously they should get the book, "Dictatorship: The Dictatorship of Woke Capital." Um, especially with the new preface, now you can get that. Um, and does the Kindle version have the new preface? That I don't know yet. I've okay. uh, reached out to the publisher, but I, ha- I haven't heard back yet. Um, a couple of things. I, first, I want to thank everybody uh, who has gotten involved in this over the past couple of years. I, as I said, when, when the book came out, uh, I was a little pessimistic that there was much chance that we could do anything. Uh, but there has been so much uh, support uh, and, and so many people who have identified this as a problem uh, that they, they have gotten involved. Uh, the other thing I would say is uh, there will be another book. Um, I believe it's slated for publication this fall. It's called Other People's Money um, and sort of uh, uh, takes this another step further, addresses some of the responses, uh, some of the causes of the concentration of power and capital uh, in the hands of a few people and how we can continue to push back against that. Uh, And then if anybody wants to find my uh, daily work, it's at wokecapital.org. Wokecapital.org. That's easy enough to uh, to remember. Well, you've been on this for a uh, you know for a long time, um, and uh, I I really like the way you you clearly have an understanding of the business environment. You've got a strong business background, but also kind of a solid philosophical background. And I haven't seen anyone been able to bring those two things together. I mean, you end you end the dictatorship of woke capital talking about Carl Schmidt. Um, yeah. who isn't, ex- who is not exactly a household name, even for philosophy right. majors. Um, and, uh, you know, and his story, you know, he saw the way the politicization of everything led to conflict for him. The answer eventually was, I guess we need a Fuhrer who will just right. get rid of all that. Um, and I guess that's really the choice. Either we're going to be self-governing yeah. or we're going to have a Fuhrer. I know which one I want. The, the 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 war the the total war in the total state which he describes uh, is the result of politicizing everything uh, and his claim was that eventually uh, this leads to chaos and it eventually causes a population to despair uh, and that it enables uh, a totalitarian uh, leader to uh, 
take advantage of that uh, and to promise an end to the chaos and a promise an end to the constant squabbling. And, and that's the risk. If we continue to allow everything to be politicized, and particularly in this case, business to be politicized, then we run the risk of creating this chaos that will uh, eventually empower somebody to do something that nobody wants. Hmm, interesting. So that's that's the risk that we face. And obviously, Schmidt was a case in point. He went from being, uh, you know, a, a, a Weimar jurist to being the crown jurist of the Third Reich. So, you know, he was a case in point of just how uh, frustrated some people get with all of this and, and their willingness to throw everything aside just to have order. I guess uh, my personal view is that the the only real answer is a genuine spiritual renewal. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that that arc is right, you know, that you you get politics becomes the new religion. It breaks yep. down into factions. Rene Girard calls this mimetic contagion. It becomes violent. And then for Girard, there's a scapegoat. You got to kill somebody. Right? right. So Hitler scapegoats Jews and then Poles. And so uh, um, uh, and then that that kind of restores a kind of order, but it's based on evil. It's an it's evil, but it's orderly. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's your choice. You can have chaos or you can have evil dictatorship. And th- th- there is another option, which is changed hearts, spiritual and cultural renewal from the inside out and from the bottom up. Um, yep. And I think Schmidt didn't really properly understand that. Um, no, I, I, I think you're probably right that that's you know, clearly something that escaped him. Uh, but, it, you know, I agree with you entirely. Uh, you know, I'm a, a big believer in, in restoring virtue as as a uh, guide, uh, both personally and uh, in business, that that, that can become uh, an important practice, uh, sort of a McIntyrean uh, revolt against the values uh, imposed from the Enlightenment, that if we return to a virtues-based ethics, mm-hmm. that this is something that we can uh, work our way out of. Stephen Sukup, author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, thank you for being with us on Meeting of Minds. Thank you very much for having me, Jerry. I appreciate it.